chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can I, or how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed Edom and all his household. You know, every Sunday, I or whoever is speaking selects a scripture reading to be for the sermon. And there's not many more depressing scripture readings than the one we just had, because it's this story of how God instantaneously struck dead Uzzah because he touched the ark. You've probably heard that story before or read that passage before, and I, I don't know about you, but initially when the first time that I came across that passage, it frustrated me. It bothered me a little bit because that doesn't seem fair that God would strike Uzzah dead when Uzzah was just trying to keep the ark from falling off of a cart. That passage, that doesn't seem to fit with the image of the loving God that we proclaim. That doesn't make sense when you read that passage at first. What I want to do this morning is unpack this story so that we all understand why Uzzah died, and more importantly, so that we can discover what we can learn from this biblical story. But before we dive into Uzzah's death, we first need to understand why the ark was being relocated in the first place. And there are three basic reasons, as to, to, or at least possible reasons, as to why the ark was being relocated at this time. You have to remember that David it has just been made king over the entirety of the nation of Israel. If you journey back one chapter into 2 Samuel chapter 5, you find out that the, the elders of the people of Israel finally came to him at Hebron and made him king over the entire 12 tribes. So he relocated to Jerusalem to assume the throne. After Saul's death in battle, Saul's son Ishbosheth laid claim to the throne even though David was the rightfully anointed next king. And so David was stuck down in Hebron, reigning over a single tribe, while Ishbosheth took over the rest of the tribes. Ishbosheth was eventually murdered, and now, with his absence, David was able to assume the throne in its entirety. So in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David has become king over all the tribes of Israel. 
Now, you, you need to know the chief enemy, the rival of Israel at that time were the Philistines. Now, the Philistines didn't really care when David was king over just one tribe. But as soon as David became king over the entire nation of Israel, the Philistines notice. The Philistines started to get concerned because David was their thorn in the flesh. David was the one guy they didn't want on that throne because David was the guy that slew their greatest warrior, Goliath. And David was the one who killed 200 Philistine men as a dowry for Saul's daughter. And David was the one who defeated the Philistine army with his ragtag militia while he was a fugitive on the run from King Saul. David was always undermining the Philistines. And so the Philistines intentionally sought to go to war with David. Look at chapter 5 and verse 17 of 2 Samuel. We're told that when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. I, I don't think they were going up to search for David to congratulate him. No, I think they were going to find David to execute him. They wanted to rid themselves of David. Now look at what happened in chapter 5, verse 21 of 2 Samuel. We're told that David and the Philistines, they've gone to war. David is victorious. And in verse 21, we're told that as the Philistines fled, they left their idols there and David and his men carried them away. In other words... The representations of Philistine deities were captured by David at this battle. He took away the very objects that they worshipped. And as a result, the Philistines attempted to attack David a second time. But once again, they were unsuccessful. You can read about that in verses 22 through 25. You see, David takes the throne, and all that the Philistines worry about is trying to get him off the throne. But all that happens is he conquers them again and again. And on one of these particular conquests, he captures all their idols. Now, when we get to chapter 6 and verse 1, we find out that David goes to get the Ark of the Covenant. But he doesn't go by himself. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 1. He takes 30,000 men with him to escort the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Why do you think he took 30,000 men? If you go back and read the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, it's not that big. It's not that heavy. It's actually designed for four men to carry it on their shoulders. It doesn't require 30,000 men. The only reason you take 30,000 men to transport the ark is if you need 30,000 men to protect the ark. What did the ark represent? It represented the very presence of God among his people. Back in Exodus, when God ordered the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, he had told Moses that his presence would be there at the, on the mercy seat. His presence would be associated with that lid that went on top of the Ark of the Covenant in particular. And so, the, David is escorting this object that represents God's presence among the people of Israel after he's captured the objects 
that the Philistines associate with their deities. I think David's concerned about retaliatory action. He has taken the idols of the Philistines that they left in battle, and he may be concerned that they're going to come back and try to capture the Ark of the Covenant. And he's got a legitimate concern there because they had done it once before. During the days of Eli as judge, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant was taken out to the battlefield so that the Israelites might be victorious. But they weren't. They fled the battlefield and they left the Ark of the Covenant there and it fell into Philistines' hands. Maybe David's concerned that could happen again. And so it may be that David wants to move the ark to prevent the Philistines from capturing it. But it may also be that he wants to move the ark to demonstrate God's involvement in his reign. One thing you need to remember is that during Saul's reign, there's not much mention of the Ark of the Covenant, nor the tabernacle for that matter. During the reign of Saul, you read very little about the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the last mention of the tabernacle is in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 3 when Samuel receives that special calling from God. The last mention of the Ark of the Covenant during the reign of Saul is in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 18 when once again he decides he's going to take the Ark out to the battlefield as he faces off with the Philistines again. The point of, of such observations is this. It shows that during the reign of Saul, God ceased to be at the center of the nation's activities. Maybe God's rejection of Saul was visibly demonstrated by the absence of God's symbol of representation during Saul's reign. See, the ark during the reign of Saul, the ark was kept in the city of Kiriath-Jerim in the house of Abinadab. We read that in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. It wasn't kept near the throne. It wasn't kept in the capital city. It wasn't kept in the central location. It wasn't readily available to Saul. Maybe there's some overlap there. As God rejects Saul as king, as God distanced himself from Saul, Maybe the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was distant from Jerusalem relates that in a very visible way. And as we enter 2 Samuel chapter 6, David has officially been made king over the entire nation. And early on in his reign, he decides that the Ark of the Covenant needs to be brought near the throne. Maybe he realized... Maybe he realized that he needed to visibly demonstrate that his reign will center itself around God's presence. Maybe he wants to show the people that unlike King Saul, God's going to take precedence during the reign of King David. And maybe he also wanted the people to see that God approved of him as king. David's going to be the one who wants to construct a temple, a permanent 
ability for God to be worshipped, for God's presence to abide. Now, he's not going to be the one to construct that temple, but God expresses his delight in the fact that David wants to build the temple. And God has no issues with David choosing to relocate the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. There is no criticism, no condemnation, nothing in the text that says that this is a bad move on David's part. So the Ark may, may be, David may be choosing to relocate the Ark, not only because he wants to protect it from the Philistines, but also because he wants to associate God with his reign in Israel. But there may be one other reason that we need to notice. During the transport of the ark to Jerusalem, circumstances forced it to be detained in the house of Obed-Edom for a time. And while it was there, Obed-Edom's house prospered. And David took notice of that. If you look at verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 6, David says, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. David's thought process sounds as if he's a little bit jealous of Obed-Edom. As if he wants those blessings that Obed-Edom's receiving because of the presence of that ark. Certainly, we all desire for our homes to be the recipients of God's blessings. But maybe David's desire is less selfish than that. I mean, he's not criticized here for uh, wanting the ark relocated, as I've already mentioned. He's not criticized for this thought process. Maybe David is not so much wanting his household to receive the blessings that Obed-Edom received, but instead maybe he's wanting God's people, the entire nation of Israel, to receive those blessings by placing the Ark of the Covenant in their capital city. Maybe David wants God's blessings to rain down on the entire nation of Israel through his reign, and the way to achieve that is by having the Ark in Jerusalem. The point is this, David has a lot of good reasons for moving the ark. And while his intentions were good, his execution was initially quite bad. It takes David two attempts to get the ark to Jerusalem, and, and that's where we start transitioning to understanding what leads to Uzzah's death. The reason it took David two attempts to get the ark to Jerusalem is because David's first attempt at relocating the ark was not executed according to God's instructions. His first attempt at relocating the ark was not executed according to God's instructions. To us, how the ark is transported seems like something that shouldn't be a big deal. But because the ark represented God's presence among his people, he wanted it to be moved with respect and honor. So he was very specific about how it should be transported. In particular, he was specific about the attachments to the ark that would make it transportable. If you go back to Exodus chapter 25 and look at verses 12 through 15, you'll discover that the ark would be constructed with four rings of gold attached to its four feet with two rings on each side. And in verses 13 and 14 of Exodus 25, you find out that two poles made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold would be inserted into the rings on the side of the ark so that it could be carried. And the poles were never to be removed. 
They were to be permanent fixtures with the Ark of the Covenant. God was also specific about who would be doing the transportation of the Ark and how they would transport it. According to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 8, the Levites were specifically chosen to be the ones to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And according to Numbers chapter 7 and verse 9, the Ark was to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. And God was also specific about maintaining its holiness. According to Numbers chapter 4 verse 5, when it was time for the tabernacle to be moved, the priests were to take down the veil, that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and they would cover the Ark of the Covenant with it. And Numbers chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us that those carrying the Ark were instructed to not touch it, as well as the other holy things, um, which is apparently the other furnishings that were present in the tabernacle. But they were not to touch it, lest they die. So God was very specific about how to transport the Ark of the Covenant, about who would transport the Ark of the Covenant, and about how to maintain the holiness of the Ark of the Covenant while it was in transport. See, there are occasions where God likes to get very specific. Throughout Scripture, you come across these points in time or, or these uh, these presentations of information where God is very detailed-oriented. And this is one of those times. God is very specific about the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, look again at how David's initial Ark relocation process took place. This is verse 2 through 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 6. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. What's the problem here? David has decided to transport the ark on a cart that was being pulled by oxen, we'll find out in a little bit. Is that the way God ordered for his ark to be moved? No. God had instructed the Israelites to have Levites carry the ark on their shoulders using the poles that were slid through the ringlets that were attached to the feet of the ark. So look what happens, verse 6 and 7 of 2 Samuel chapter 6. And when they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of, the, of God. So not only did David fail to consult God's word regarding the correct transportation process, but when his alternative method endangered the ark, Uzzah, assumedly with all good intentions, Uzzah neglected God's warning against physical contact with the ark, and he suffered the consequence that God forewarned. See, the whole situation comes to a failure to keep God's commandments. 
If the Levites had been carrying the ark on their shoulders, the transport of the ark would have been less risky and unlikely to result in a situation that would have endangered the ark or taken us as life. All David had to do was review God's word to find out how he should do this. All Uzzah had to do was familiarize himself with God's policies about art transportation so that he wouldn't make that mistake. All they had to do was follow God's instructions. Doesn't that sound so easy? Doesn't that sound so simple? We read all these verses just a minute ago. We referenced all these passages that say this is how it's going to be moved. This is who's going to do it. And this is how you're going to treat it with respect and maintain its holiness. We looked at all those verses. It's like 2 plus 2 equals 4 for you and I. We think that sounds so incredibly easy to follow those instructions. But how many of you failed to follow God's instructions last week? How many of us have failed to follow God's instructions in the past 30 days? How many of us have intentionally failed to follow God's instructions in the past year. You see, we're not unlike David and we're not unlike Uzzah because we too find these opportunities where we decide to ignore God's instructions. Now notice what David does. David is frustrated. He's disappointed. He's even angry. The text makes you think that David's angry at God, but it may not be the case that David is angry at God. He may be angry at himself. He may be angry at Uzzah for actually for for touching the ark. He could be angry for a number of reasons, but he realizes something's not right. So you know what he does? He stops the whole process. They put the ark at somebody's residence for a time, and David goes back to the drawing board. Sometime later, David managed to get the ark to Jerusalem, and apparently this second attempt was without complication. You can read about it there in 2 Samuel chapter 6. You can read about how he finally got it to Jerusalem. But I want to turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 15, and I want you to notice something that is said there about this second attempt. 1 Chronicles chapter 15 is the first three verses that describe the events of this successful transport of the ark. We're told that David prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it at the end of verse 1. Then verse 2 says, David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. What we find out just in those few words of 1 Chronicles chapter 15 is that David was finally able to bring the ark to Jerusalem because he went back and did it God's way. We don't know how he came to the conclusion that he needed to do it God's way. Maybe he sat down and and read Mosaic Law. Maybe he consulted with some priests. Maybe they together collectively went back and found what God had to say about this. But they did it right the second time. They did it according to God's instructions the second time, and they were successful the second time. Uzzah died because they didn't follow God's instructions. 
the ark got stuck at somebody's house because they didn't follow God's instructions. Ark nearly fell off of a cart because they didn't follow God's instructions. What can we learn from this episode in David's life? It's one thing for us to, through the story, and come to an understanding of, of why this negative event happened, resulting in others' death. But it's another thing for us to find application because it's not like transporting an ark anytime soon. I don't know if anybody's got any plans to, to go out and move the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, can you find that warehouse where it was put in Indiana Jones? How does this apply to us? Two things I want you to consider today as we bring this lesson to it. You know, according to that clock, it's only 1020. So I still got 40 minutes. I'm just kidding. Here's the first thing I want you to take away from this lesson. Good intentions are not more important than proper execution. Good intentions are not more important than proper execution. All of David's reasons for relocating the ark are good. All of David's reasons for relocating the ark are justifiable. David's reasons for relocating the ark are admirable. That's important to note because nowhere does the Bible criticize or condemn him for wanting to relocate the ark. God does, does not disapprove of what David is trying to do, but God does take exception to the way David goes about doing it. This should be no surprise to us because the exact same thing happened to King Saul. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and verse 3, Saul was instructed to war against the Amalekites and specifically told to not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But if you go back and read the story of what happens after Saul's victory over the Amalekites, we find out in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 9 that Saul spared Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And he also spared the best of the sheep, best of the oxen, the best of the fattened calves, and the best of the lambs. He spared all that was good. And when Samuel confronted Saul about his failure to follow God's instructions, you know what Saul says? Hey, I just saved these animals so we could offer them as sacrifices to God. That's good intentions. But good intentions are not more important than proper execution. Listen to what Saul says, I'm sorry, Samuel says to Saul after he meets up with him. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 and 23. Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption or insubordination or arrogance or stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Samuel tells Saul that it would have been better for him to do things exactly as God instructed him than to make up his own plan with all good intentions. The lesson for you and I is that doing things God's way matters. 
That's why we are so adamant that one needs to be baptized in order to be saved. That's why we worship without musical instruments. That's why our congregation is autonomously overseen by shepherds. We understand that doing things God's way matters. Now let's make this personal. In what areas of your spiritual walk are you emphasizing good intentions over proper execution? Are you doing that in your service to others? Are you emphasizing good intentions over proper execution when it comes to your evangelistic efforts? What about your attendance to worship, Bible class, and the other fellowship opportunities of the church? What about your personal study habits or your prayer life? Good intentions trump proper execution? What about your responsibility to spiritually prepare your children? Or your responsibility to submit to your spouse or your responsibility to honor your parents? Or your stewardship of God's blessings? Is proper execution taking a back seat to good intentions? Because good intentions are not more important than proper execution. Remember what James chapter 4 and verse 17 says. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Execution matters. That's one lesson we can take away from this story in the life of David, but there is another lesson we can take away, and that is this. If at first you don't succeed, return to the instructions. You've heard it. Try, try again. No, 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 no. Stop what you're doing. Return to the instructions. That especially goes for men, right? See, David initially failed when he attempted to relocate the ark because he didn't follow God's directions as presented in Mosaic law. He then succeeded on his second attempt because he specifically ordered that the transportation of the ark be done according to God's instructions. We don't know what transpired between these two attempts to cause David to change protocol, but since the first attempt demonstrated no familiarity with God's ark-moving instructions and the second attempt did, I think it's fair to conclude that in between these attempts, David consulted God's word in some fashion. So in the face of failure, it appears that David went back to the read the instructions so he would be successful the next time. Do you remember what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says about God's word? It says that God's word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for in other words, the content of God's Word possesses the information we need to succeed in God's eyes. If some area of our life is experiencing failure, the best thing we can do is return to His Word and use it to determine whether or not we've done what He has instructed us to do. So think about it this way. Is your financial situation failing? then go back and read what God has to say about giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Go back and read what God has to say about debt 
in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7 and Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. Go back and read what God has to say about contentment in Philippians chapter 4. The love of money in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And financial anxiety in Matthew chapter 6. Go back and read the instructions. And then ask yourself whether or not you're doing things God's way. Is your marriage failing? Go back and reacquaint yourself with what God's Word has to say about your role in the marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Go back and reacquaint yourself with what God's Word has to say about your, your uh, responsibility to fulfill your duty to one another in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Go back and reacquaint yourself with what God's Word has to say about reconciling with one another also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then ask yourself whether or not you're doing things God's way. Is your faith failing? Go back and study what God has to say about assembling with the body of believers in Hebrews chapter 10. Go back and study what God has to say about distancing yourself from sin in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and James chapter 4. Go back and study what God has to say about prayer and personal study habits and passages like Philippians chapter 4, Matthew chapter 6, and 2. And then ask yourself whether or not you're doing things God's way. See, we need to remember what David said about God's Word in Psalm 119 and verse 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet. And that's coming from somebody who learned the hard way that he wasn't listening to God's Word on at least one occasion. David is one of the most important individuals in the Bible. If you were to make a list of the 100 most important people in the Bible, David makes the top easily. And here's what fascinates me about David. God calls him a man after his own heart in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22. Do you know why God says David is a man after his own heart? It's not because of his courage in the face of a giant. It's not because of his endurance in the face of opposition from Saul. It's not because of his wisdom in handling royal affairs or anything else. It's because of this, his willingness to do the will of God. Acts chapter 13 and verse 22 God says, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. David is identified as a man after God's own heart because despite his excursions away from God's will, David always returned and to the best of his ability attempted to follow the will of God even in the smallest details. The question for this morning is quite simple. Are you a man or a woman after God's own heart like David? Are you one who wants to follow his will in all matters? Right now, let me just say that if you've never confessed that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, if you've never repented of your sins, and if you've never been immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, then you haven't followed God's will.
for how you receive salvation. Those are the necessary steps that are identified throughout the New Testament. And it may just be that today you need to do those things so that your sins can be removed and so that you can be assured of your salvation. It may be today that as we've studied David's life and his failure to follow the instructions in this phase of his life, it may be as we study this and look at it, you realize that you've failed to follow God's instructions in some area of your life. And it's time for you to correct the course. Well, now is that opportunity. We extend the invitation this morning so that if any area of your life you need to write things with God, you need to follow the instructions from here on out, now is the opportunity. Won't you come while together we stand and sing? Why from the sunshine?